All right, welcome everyone to the third of six sessions on making peace, how to overcome conflict. You see the title of the series on the screen behind me. We left off at page 11 and we'll pick up there in just a bit, but I want to remind you of some things or make you aware of some things that are coming up. Every Wednesday, every Wednesday we meet at 7 o'clock at Patrick Henry Middle School. We have a full complement of ministries and classes for all ages, so for kids, teenagers, adults. So you'll find something that will be of help to you if you want to grow uh, further in your understanding of Scripture and your walk with the Lord. We offer it for that purpose, so it's every Wednesday, this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, Patrick Henry Middle School. It's about a mile from here on on Hall Road. So we don't meet here. It's over at uh, Patrick Henry. Also, one week from Thursday is uh, the next Ladies' Night Out. So ladies, uh, you're invited over to Sharon Martin's house in Brownstown. Uh, If you don't know Sharon or where her place is, there are maps uh, over at the table, over by the windows. Pick one up before you leave, and you're all invited. And it'd be a good way for you to get to know some of the ladies if you haven't had an opportunity to do that very well in this sort of setting. So that's uh, one week from Thursday, 7 o'clock at Sharon's. It'll be uh, refreshments and uh, appetizers and desserts. And there's a sheet for you to indicate uh, which of those you can bring, an appetizer or dessert. Uh, But also, uh, Julie Castle, we have in the uh, program, is our resident extreme couponer. And she's going to be giving a demonstration on how to uh, uh, save yourself some money, and so it'll just be a good time, and Julie will be adding that, uh, add, adding that to the fellowship. Two other items that are on the back of your uh, notebook. If you'll take a look at the cover at the back of your notebook, down toward the bottom, November 19 and 20. November 19 is a Saturday brunch at our house, and as you see the name there, it's Newcomer's Brunch, so it is for anyone who is new to our church. We offer it periodically throughout the year as a means for us to get to know you a little bit and you us. It is just what it advertises. It's a brunch, and it's just a time to get to know each other. It is not reeling you in to anything, okay? So I don't give a presentation. I don't ask you to do anything. I don't follow up on it. We give you brunch. We eat together. We break bread together, and we talk. That's it, okay? So don't be afraid, and if you would uh, like that, we would love that. So we'd love to have you come to our house for that, but we'd like to know how many people are doing it. It's from 10 a.m. to about noon uh, at our place, and we'd love to provide the uh, brunch for you. So get a map to our place at the resource center over by the windows, and we have those invitations uh, there. So we have printed invitations that have uh, the address to our house, our phone number, what time it starts, the date, all of that to remind you. So pick one of those up. They'll put your name down on the list, and we'll look forward to having you on Saturday, November 19th. The next day, Sunday, the 20th, is our next scheduled baptism. So several times throughout the year, we schedule baptisms. The next one is that day, November the 20th. And baptism is something that Jesus says all of his followers are supposed to do. Uh, And what is it doing? It is uh, being dunked in water. Gently, but nevertheless. You're immersed in water to signify, because it's a symbol of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus says all of his followers are to do that in order to publicly show that they believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. So baptism is not optional for followers of Jesus. If you claim to follow Jesus, then that's an act of obedience, something he tells you to do. So you you have to do it, and you should joyfully do so. Uh, And I can help you with that. That's what we're here for. 
So when you leave today, let me know that you'd like to call the office or send me an email for us to set a time to get together to talk about that, talk about what it is, what uh, qualifies someone to to be baptized. Uh, If through that conversation it turns out you're not ready or you don't want to, obviously we're not forcing that on you other than to encourage you to follow Jesus and obedience in that. And you have the opportunity on November the 20th. So see me uh, today before you leave if you'd be interested in talking about it. All right, thank you for your indulgence on the announcements, page 11. And let me remind you in the first two weeks of our series that we've seen the fact that we all have conflict, all of us, of course. And you are here uh, because you experience conflict in your relationships, as do I. We all have conflict. And we have seen that all of us tend to respond to the conflict that's in our lives in one of three ways. And those three ways are on that slippery slope diagram that we have for you on several of the first pages, uh, and I think the last one is on page six. But uh, you've got this uh, half a sphere uh, diagram, and on the left side of that you have a pie wedge that shows one type of response to conflict, and that is escape responses. And so some of us respond to conflict by trying to get away from it. And if you do that, then you are a peace faker. But then on the right side, there's another pie wedge that shows a second type of response, and that's an attack response. And so we don't run from it, but we run at, in various ways, the person we're in conflict with. And if you do that, you're a peace breaker. And then you want to stay on top of the slippery slope, and that, those are reconciliation, peacemaking responses. If you do that, you're a peacemaker. So escape, attack, or reconciliation, a peace faker, a peace breaker, or a peacemaker. And what we, what we need to be are people who are peacemakers. But in order to do that, it takes a, a number of realizations on our part about God, about ourselves, and about, about the people with whom we have conflict. About God, about ourselves, and about the people with whom we have conflict. So last week, I said that you actually can engage in peacemaking responses because you recognize you know some things about this circumstance, which includes this individual or individuals that you're in conflict with. You know some things about that. And that knowledge then can aid you in having the right kind of response. And so I said that you know something about God. We saw last week. And what do you know about God? Well, you know that God does everything that he does for his glory. That God does everything that he does in order for his, and his glory means this, for his character to be displayed in his world. So everything that God does and everything that God allows in your life, including this person you're dealing with, he does in order for this to be used as an opportunity for him to be glorified, for you to show his glory in this display his character in this situation. So you know something about God. He's doing this, he's allowing this, in order to display his character. And so this thing is not random. It's not just hanging out there. It's not just something that happened that escaped God's notice. He can and desires to use this in order to display his character, glorify himself. So you know about God. Here's another thing you know about God, though. 
that he wants in the midst of this for you to display his character. And then having done that, God has an end game. And the end game is that you be mature, that you grow through this. And we saw from James chapter 1 in, in the Bible that God allows adverse people and adverse circumstances called trials into our lives because you know that the testing of your faith, that is the testing of what you believe, works, brings about perseverance. And then perseverance, as it continues, makes you complete or mature. So God's end game in, in this is for you to grow, for him to be glorified and for you to grow. So you can respond the right way because of what you know about God, but also because of what you know about the other person. And what do you know about the other person? <laughs> Whether a jerk, <laughs> you know, you've got your own list of words. But what do you know about the person from the Bible? You see, you've got an upper hand here all the time because you have read the file on this guy. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover was known for having files on everybody. Wiretaps, right? Kept thick files on people. J. Edgar, God knows everything about everybody. God knows everything about J. Edgar Hoover. And he wrote a book. And he says in the book what people's deal is, what their problem is. And you've got access to that. You've got the file about the individual. Now, what do you know about this individual who does not want to make peace? The person is a peace faker or a peace breaker, not a peacemaker. What do you know about them? You know, we saw last week, a few things. You, one, you know that they know God. But that their problem is they don't want to know God. And so they're running from God. They run from God through a number, of, a number of means. They know God. They don't want to know God. And as a result of not, knowing, uh, not, not pursuing God, they're rendered foolish. That is, failure to, failing to apply what it is they know they should do. You know that about them. Okay, but I'm, I'm living the same house with this person. I understand they're a fool. Believe me, I've told them many a time. The Bible concurs with my assessment. But what am, I, what, am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? We saw from Romans chapter 12 in the Bible that we are to live at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. In other words, I can't force this person to change, correct? But I can still live as a peacemaker pursuing peace with this person because I know about what God is doing, I know about what their problem is, and as a result of that, this person and their issues don't control me. And some of you have come into this room because you're in a relationship or relationships where there's someone who controls you. And I'm telling you that you have allowed that person to control you. What should control you is what you know about God, what you know about them, and as we're going to delve today, what you know about yourself. But instead, you've allowed this person to control you. And so they make me mad. They push my buttons. 
Well, they make you mad. We're going to see on page 11 in a moment. Ain't nobody who can make you mad. Who can make you mad. But we use that kind of term that, you know, that made me mad. When he did that, it made me mad. Caused me to be mad. Uh Uh-uh, something else caused you to be mad, as we will see. But you become convinced that this person makes me mad. And they push my buttons, and you've got buttons hanging out all over the place. And they're pushing them. And as a result of your buttons hanging out all over the place, and they're pushing them, they are controlling you. To put it in biblical language, the reverence that you have for this individual has become greater than your reverence for God. (laughs) That's bad. Reverence that you have for this individual has become more important, greater than your reverence for God. Now, you might recognize this term more than reverence. Fear. The fear or the reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says the Bible. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. The fear of the Lord or reverence of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. But the reverence for man, the fear of man, will prove to be a trap for you, a snare. Proverbs 29 and verse 25. And many of us are controlled by people who push our buttons because we revere them, we fear them more than God. So how do, I, how, do I de- how do I break that down now so that this person does not control me? Well, here's what you've got to know then. You've got to know something about God. You've got to know something about them. You do. We saw. And you've got to know something about yourself. And what do you have to know about yourself? Page 11. What you've got to know about yourself is that the battle that you're engaged in, the most important battle you're engaged in, is not outside of you with that individual. It's inside of you with your own heart. What you need to know about yourself, you know about God, you know about them, and what you need to know about yourself is the most important battle you're engaged in is not external to you with that other person, it's internal to you in your own heart. So page 11, Jesus says, you see in the italics there, before Roman numeral 1, out of the heart come. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And then we've got James 4 that we saw briefly last week. What causes fights and quarrels? My buttons get pushed. He makes me mad. That's what causes them. That's not what it says, is it? No, they come from your desires that battle within you. You want something but don't get it, and then the result of what you want but don't get then is the conflict. That's what the Bible says. It's an inside job, not an outside job. At the end of our time last week, I tried to point out that the desires that I have are not necessarily evil. And the following pages have a number of assessments for you to see, and I encourage you to read, not now, I encourage you to read, those pages to assess the kinds of desires that you have in your heart that then give rise to this reverence for other people. 
Because now I'm dependent upon them to meet this thing that I want. It may be a good thing. And when they, they don't meet it, my world crashes in in that moment. And thereby they control me. I have this desire, it may be a desire for a good thing, that they need to meet, their failure to meet it pushes my buttons. But the problem is not them. I mean, they, they may be a piece of work. I don't know them. But the problem is an inside job. Let me ask you, did Jesus encounter pieces of work? Right? But there ain't no buttons to push. So Jesus is in control because there are no buttons for them to push. They're, pu- they're trying. This always works. They're pushing away. It always works. It worked with, you know, Satan is going crazy. It's worked with Adam in the garden. And here I am in this wilderness with Jesus, and I'm giving him all the stuff and more, and I'm offering all of this to you, and it's not working. Why? A different heart. And so the issue is the heart and how it responds to the external stimuli that others provide. That causes us to be angry and to fight and quarrel, says the Bible. Now, says the Bible. But this is not what modern psychology says. So, I have just run up against what modern psychology says. They are always looking outside of you for what's happening with you. Always. Now, I'm going to talk about some of the ways that they do that and that you've experienced. But before I talk about the ways they do it, let's remind ourselves why they do it. Why do psychologists look outside of you for the reasons you do what you do? Well, because they're, they're old man did. And his old man did. And ultimately, we all have the same old man. Did you know that? Our old man's a guy named Adam. I mean, ultimately, my great, 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 I don't know how many greats i got to do, but i got a lot of greats, and they finally end up Adam. And so do yours. And he, and he started doing this. He started saying, it's, it's someone or something outside of me. Right? Is, am I right about that? Genesis 3 He sins, and he says, it's her. And she says, it's that thing, that snake. And we all say, it's you, God. It's really you. But whatever it is, it ain't me. And your psychologist is a child of Adam like you are. Did you know that? He's looking for excuses for his own stuff. So... I'm just I'm telling you that the natural response of humanity is to say it's outside of me. That is why Jimmy Buffett is a great theologian. I mean, he has got some serious theology in Margaritaville. Right? You know, it's not my fault. Some people say there's a woman to blame. And then he finally, you know, gets drunk enough to realize it's his fault. <laughs> you know. What I'm trying to do is help you realize it's your fault without the serum, (laughs) okay? (laughs) So, everybody does that, and people do that naturally. And modern modern psychology does that naturally. Now, what do they do? What they do is they say, 
hey, let's look at what happened in your, in your what? In your past. Now, as we're going to see, does your past matter? Yep, it does. If you took our series last fall on relation, called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, you know that I spent a lot of time talking about the baggage that we all bring into our relationships. We all got baggage. Good baggage, bad baggage, ugly baggage. We've all got baggage. We bring it in. So it's not that the past is irrelevant, but the past is not determinative. It is not controlling. It is something for you to be aware of so that you can see how you've responded to it. But it does not control your responses, says the Bible. So we look into our past, and we ask questions like, if you've ever been on the couch, you'll be asked questions like, so tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about your, tell me about your parents. I do that sometimes when I'm counseling folks as well. Again, I, I want to know what baggage we brought in, but I'm going to show you that I'm going to talk to the counselee in a very different way about how they process that baggage. So tell me about your past and what were your parents like? Well, you know, my dad it was never good enough. Nothing I ever did was ever good enough. That's a common theme. Lots of people. It was never good enough. He was never around. Never showed up at my games. Was always out trying to make money. Never said, I can't ever remember my dad. This is not me saying this. But these are common responses. I can't ever remember my dad hugging me. Showing me affection. Saying, I love you. And these are all, these are all negative things. They're all, I'm sure, accurate things. And they're all things that should not have happened. And they influence you. There's no doubt about that. Now, Here's what, then, modern psychology will tell you. It will tell you, here's what's happening with you. You had, you came into this world with an emotional deficit that needed to be filled. And it has not been filled for you. And you are now reacting to that. You're and we use these psychologized terms. We, we, we don't even realize they come from psychology. We hear them so much. You're acting out. That's bequeathed to us by psychology. You're acting out. Okay? But you're acting out because your emotional deficit in your heart has not been filled. Now, let me process that biblically for you. In that model, your heart is an empty vessel that needs to be filled. Your heart is a passive empty vessel that needs to be filled. And your parents didn't fill it right. Now, just in what we've looked at in the first couple of weeks, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. We've looked at a few passages of the Bible and so on already. Does the Bible teach that your heart is passive? Or active. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Jesus said, right on page 11, Out of the overflow of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. Do you have a passive heart or an active heart? You had an act. Every one of us came into this world with an active heart. Not a passive thing, not a passive empty vessel that people are supposed to fill up. Now this is a great, you know, the passive empty vessel thing is a great model if you're Adam in the garden. But if you're going to follow the truth, the truth of the matter is I'm a child of Adam. And now the way I act and react in my relationships is because of my natural disposition given to me by my Adamic nature, by Adam, through every one of us. So you're at this empty pass, your heart is this empty passive vessel that needs to be filled up, but it was not filled up. And that's made you mad. You've grown up an angry young man or an angry young woman. And you're acting that out, and you're trying to find the love that you should have gotten. Am I, am I close? Has anybody ever heard this before? And all the while, you're just trying to find the love that you should have gotten from somebody else, but they didn't do it. And so now, what we're going to have to spend our time on is dealing with your situation with the people that didn't fill up your love cup. And this is actually, they call it a love cup. It's not me just saying that. Your heart's a love cup that needs to be filled. It's empty. All right. But the heart is not, is not passive. The Bible teaches that the heart is active. To put it another way, our hearts are, it's not that our hearts are deprived. It's that our hearts are what? Depraved. Depraved. Depraved means sinful, wicked. It's not that they're deprived. That's not the primary thing. It's that they're depraved. And they respond actively in every situation in which we, in which we find our, ourselves. And so, Mark chapter 7 and verse 15. Mark 7 and verse 15. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Jesus says it's not what, it's not what went in or failed to go in. There was already stuff in. You were born with stuff in. You were born with a heart that had stuff in it that is active and is actually full. Full of what? Well, Jesus goes on to say this. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For what with, from within him, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Now, if I read that to you in our counseling session and I hand you a bill for a hundred bucks, are you paying up? Oh, thank you, Pastor. I feel better. That's not popular to say. 
It happens to be accurate to say that. Our hearts are not empty, passive reservoirs to be filled, but they are active and full, and we respond to the stimuli that is our upbringing and our relationships accordingly. That's our natural disposition. Now, how do you see that work itself out? Turn to page 12. Or excuse me, I'm sorry, bottom of page 11. So what I've got going on in my heart then are these desires, sometimes desires for good things, but they can become and often do become more important to me than God, thus they are idolatrous. And I show that they're more important to me than God when I sin in the absence of that thing. Somebody doesn't give me that thing, I sin because I want that thing so much. I want that thing too much. And so John Calvin, paraphrasing him, he says, idolatry is often found in wanting good things too much. I want a good thing, but I want it so much I'm willing to sin. I'm willing to be an angry young man the rest of my life because I didn't get that. I'm willing to respond with angry words or fists or whatever it is because I didn't get that or because you did that. But all of that, understand, is a response of the heart to the external stimuli. Now, how does it actually work out? Bottom of page 11, the progression of an idol. I desire. So it starts in the heart with desires, says James chapter 4, says Jesus, says the Bible throughout. My active heart has desires. Evil desires, good desires, but desires. And I'll know that they become idolatrous when they're not given to me the way I want. How do I respond to that? So it all begins with a desire, but then it devolves into page 12. Secondly, I demand. You see, not only, I not only want this, I only desire this, but it becomes intense enough that now I have to have it. I demand that you do this. I'm, I, my well-being depends on you providing this. If you don't provide this, there are going to be consequences for me and for you. I desire this, and now I'm demanding this from you. Middle of page 12 under number 2, unmet desires have the potential of working themselves deeper and deeper into our hearts. It's especially true when we come to see a desire as something we need or deserve and therefore must have in order to be happy or fulfilled. So, spouse who's been contemplating what your spouse is doing or failing to do, and you're saying, you know, if you don't start doing or stop doing, then I'll no longer be in this relationship. I'm laying down my demands. This desire, it may be a good desire, but it's now become a demand, and it's become, it could become a demand that is so important to me that I'm willing to disobey God in the absence of it being fulfilled. So I desire, but then that desire morphs into a demand. And then if this demand is not met, turn to page 13. Bottom of page 13, here's the third step. 
I judge. <laughs> this, was, this was a legitimate need on my part. Yes, I'm demanding it of you, but anybody would demand it of you. It's a need that, that I have that you failed to fulfill. And so I am now rendering judgment on you. This is righteous judgment, remember. This is, this is my judgment, but it's also God's judgment. Because I needed this thing from you, and you didn't provide it. I'm not happy and fulfilled, so I pass judgment. And I might pass judgment for years. I might pass judgment for months. I may never actually leave you, but all the while we're together, I'm passing judgment. And I'm reminding you that you didn't do what you were supposed to do. So I'm in McDonald's a couple months ago. While my car is being repaired, I'm at McDonald's with their free Wi-Fi, and I'm on my laptop. And an old couple comes in and sit across from me. And they don't say anything to each other for like 45 minutes. Not a word. And then I'm, you know, I'm working and, and then I hear them say something. And they're talking a little bit loud. And the man says to the woman, I, it's his wife. And he says to her, you're really stupid, aren't you? That education didn't do anything for you, did it? And I'm looking. And I'm wanting to make like a pastoral citizen's arrest or, you know, or something. <laughs> I'm always wanting to intervene and, hey, hold up. You know, evil thoughts come out of your heart, old guy. <laughs> I can take you. <laughs> I wouldn't say it to a young guy, just the old guy. And, and I, wow. And then another uh, elderly gentleman comes in that they knew, third guy. And he's going to sit with them. And the man, the husband, goes to the restroom. And the wife says to this third guy, we've been married for 60 years, and he's been a tyrant all of that time. 60 years. So here's a guy who expects some things out of his wife that he's not getting, whatever it is, has been for a long time, and he's been judging her for all of those years. And they don't, have a, they don't have a marriage. They've got an existence. Right? But then sometimes it'll end up, we stay together or not, top of page 15. Well, you know, I desire and I have this legitimate demand that you didn't meet. So I judge. It's only right that there be punishment. We think in our minds. My active heart is reacting to what I think I should have had. Whether in my past or whether in my present. So I desire, maybe legitimate, I demand. Now I'm making a judgment about my spouse, about my parents, about my kids, about my fellow church member, about my boss, about my pastor. Fill in the blank. And ultimately, I'm going to punish in some way. And so many people are living in relationships that are in this final stage, punishment. 
They're punishing every day this other person for what they failed to give them. That they believe is their right. That they demand. And in all of that, this person has become more revered to me than God. And it's proved to be, as the Bible says, a snare, a trap. And now I'm in it. How do I get out of it? Well, here's how I get out of it. I've got to go back to the beginning of this thing. And that'll be our final five minutes. How do I get out of this? How do I get out of the trap now, the cycle that I'm in, in my relationship? You have to go back to the beginning and you've got to deal with the desires. You start at the beginning with the desire that morphed to a demand. And here's how you do that. Lord, I have demanded that my husband be this, this, and this. Or I've demanded that my children be this, this, and this. Whatever. I've made that a demand. Lord, I have searched my heart. As best I know your word, I think the desire for those things is something you would approve of. I think that's a good thing. Let's assume it is. It's a good thing. But now, Lord, instead of holding that with a clenched fist as a demand, I will hold it with an open hand. Lord, I desire this, but my hand is open. And if you choose to put this in my hand, I will praise you. And if you choose not to put this in my hand, I will serve you. And I will bring glory to you. And I will grow in this. And I will become mature through this. All of the things that I know that you're actively doing in this. And I will allow my reverence for you to control me, not my reverence for this other person. I know of an author, counselor, who says that when he was dating his wife, they were engaged, and he desired so much for them to, to be married. That they were both praying about it and trying to make sure this is what God had for them. And he says that when he would pray... He says, I would pray to the Lord, Lord, you know I love Luella. But I would pray with my palms up and my hand open on purpose because I'm not clinching her. I approach you with this with an open hand. And if you choose to give her to me, I will praise you for that. And if you choose not to, I will serve you through that. What a great way to approach it. And friends, that's the way we have to approach our legitimate desires. And not let them. How do I get over this? I go back to the beginning. Don't let that desire become a demand. It's at the demand stage now that someone is now morally required to meet this. And if they don't meet it, well, they're going to have to be judged and they're going to have to be punished. And lastly, take a look at page 18. Page 17. I've got to go back to the beginning. I've got to release the grip that I have upon this desire such that it's become a demand. But how do I do that? That's what's on page 18 and following. The cure for an idolatrous heart. I'll encourage you to read that, but I will just paraphrase what it says. In order for you to relinquish your grip on this idolatrous desire and open your hand and let it, be willing to let it go, God has to empower you for that to happen. God's got to break the crustiness of your heart. 
There's been a crust that, is, that has been growing on your heart through all of these years. How can that be cut through? And God said through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, he said, I will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. It starts in the heart, and God can change the heart. And God can break up the stony heart that is yours and is mine. And so the cure for an idolatrous heart is to come to God and say, God, only you can change me from the inside out. And so I'm asking you, I'm asking you to do that. Now, what that really means is I'm coming to God through the Lord Jesus Christ who is God. God the Son. And God the Son has come to rescue you from the idols of your heart. I mean, if you want to put in a nutshell, why did Jesus come? A lot of ways to describe that. He came to save us from our sins. Here's a way to think about it. He came to rescue you from the idols of your heart. And so when I ask God to do this, I'm asking Jesus to do this. And God has shown how serious he is about recapturing your heart from idols and redirecting them toward him, the true and living God. He's shown how serious he is about this because God himself has come to remedy the idolatry situation with us. And so he died to pay the penalty. See, he's judged you. (laughs) You're judging other people. I desire, I demand, I judge. God desires too. You know what God desires? That he be worshipped and praised because he's God. And all the while you've been chasing that idol, you haven't been doing that. And God says, I not only desire that, I demand that. And failure to do, and God has the right to demand it, does he not? Failure to do so means that I judge that, and failure for that judgment to be taken care of means that you will be punished for that. He will do what you've been doing. The difference is he has the right. He's God. So he wants to change and redirect your desires toward him. And he wants the judgment that will be yours to be taken by him. So Jesus died to take the punishment that belongs to you and to me for being idolaters. He absorbed the punishment on the cross and he offers you a free pardon and a new heart. And if you were with us in our 930 hour, a new record, a new family, a new life, and ultimately a new home. Thanks be to God. That's yours for the asking if you recognize that there's a problem with you. Last week we talked about what we know about God and what we know about the other person. Today we've talked about what we know about you. And what we know about you and what we know about me is we need a change from the inside out. And God provides that change through Jesus Christ. So we're going to bow. And when we, as we bow, if you have never come to God through Jesus, now is your time. Friend, now is your time. God has brought you here for this very purpose, for you to hear the truth of the good news of the gospel in Jesus. And for you to acknowledge to him, Lord, I've been an idolater. I didn't know it. I know it now. I've been an idolater. And I have not allowed you to control my life. I've allowed other people and other things to control my life. I know I deserve the punishment that I've been meeting out to others. I deserve. But Jesus took my punishment. And I ask you then to forgive me 
and to rescue me, rescue me from myself. And he will save you if you do that. And he will begin changing you from the inside out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for these dear friends here to look at this very important topic. 